to From Believing to Being, a podcast about pursuing meaningful spirituality after faith deconstruction. We're your hosts. I'm Karen. And I'm Dave. We're two former evangelicals having an ongoing conversation about what life and spirituality look like after letting go of our religious beliefs. Join us as we discuss deconstruction, Christianity, mysticism, enlightenment, and consciousness, And most importantly, how to experience this new way of being in the midst of parenting, careers, and going about our everyday lives. If you've recently left your faith or simply feeling pulled into a deeper way of being, we hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you and really just reassure you that you're not alone on this journey. Well, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Today, Dave and I are thinking that we are going to kind of revisit some of the some of the things that we talked about in episode two, which was entitled "Who Am I?" I think is what we called it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we're going to kind of go back to this idea of identity, and even I would like to maybe open up with the idea of the big I versus the little I, because we use this, who am I? And I do this and I do that. And I think that, and I think this, but whenever we say the I, what are we talking about? And also in some of this consciousness stuff that, that, you know, you and I are into, they talk about the I as being something very different. I don't know, kind of going back to the, to the, who am I conversation? I think let's, let's start off by going to maybe that big I, little I, what do you think? Is that a good place to start? <laughs> is there, is there a good place to start? Are we it's con- constantly evolving? So it's almost like there's no start and there's no end, you know? Oh, getting deep already. Uh, yeah, I like it. let's go. <laughs> no, but yeah, the, the dichotomy between the big I and the little I is so helpful. And what's coming to mind is, is I is the one thing that everybody shares in either respect, right? If you're talking the big I or the little I, every being that exists would say I, you know? every human that's Mm -hmm. ever existed, every animal has that sense of I. So, yeah, I think that that's, that's great. And, but, but what does it really mean? Right. I mean, (laughs) you know, we can, we can unpack like identity and, and all the different layers of that, but to really unpack what it means to, yeah, the compare the big I and the little I, I think that's a great place to start because I think we could go a lot of different, a lot of different ways with that. (laughs) Yeah, I it was funny. I was talking to my brother yesterday, and my brother has kind of gotten into this consciousness sort of Buddhism type of stuff on his on his own. Sounds awesome. And I like it. yeah, it's it's really funny. You should bring him on the podcast sometime. <laughs> oh, I think he really wants to be on. Nice. Actually, okay. I'll tell him Love you it. said that. Perfect. <laughs> um, so you know, he when I told him this was going to be our topic, he's like, "Oh, let's talk about it," because I have a few thoughts. And so when I talked to him yesterday, you know, he started off and he was like, when I think of, you know, I think of our brains 
he said, I think of us as like a computer. He said, he said, your brain is like the computer and consciousness is like the internet that you can, you know, that, that you can use your, your brain, but consciousness is the thing that is working to bring it all. But then when I said, you know, he, he gave me this like really, really cool analogy and metaphor for consciousness and, and how our brains work and everything. But then when I asked him the question, I said, so how would you answer the question? Who am I? He paused and he was like, you know, I'm not sure that I have an answer for that quite yet. <laughs> and to me, it was interesting because there has been for myself, even where I understand these concepts on an intellectual level, but the experience of it, of shifting from being your thoughts and your feelings and your body to trying to tap into more of that being awareness part, like it's, it's different, right? You can understand it intellectually, but experiencing it and being it almost takes place at like a different, in a different time. But do you know what I mean? Have you felt like that, that too, that you get it on one, on an intellectual level, but it's taken a while for it to sink in deeper? Yes, but even on the intellectual level, I don't know that I get it. And the reason I say that is because there's this very stark, what I interpret as a difference between the esoteric Eastern philosophies, and I'm going to use fancy words, um, anatta and advaita. So there's anatta, which is a more Buddhist leaning philosophy. And then there's advaita. Um, there, the advaita is like the non-duality philosophy from Hinduism. And anatta would suggest that there is, it's no self. It's the Buddhist idea. There is no self. And then Advaita is that all is the Atman, the soul, the Brahman. It's, it's probably what we in our conversations have been more drawn to is this, this one source that begets all things. So, but, but, but why I say this is even as I reflect on it in this moment, I'm like, I struggle with that I because in the no self that I would even fall away and then experience mm. is all that remains. There is no I, it is just this, this experience that is unfolding. And we are just, well, there is no we, right? In that, in that <laughs> sense, but that right. these are just ways in which the experience is known and manifest, but mm -hmm. that the, the center of beingness doesn't actually exist. It's all an illusion. You know what I mean? So it's interesting, even on the intellectual level, there's still a, a hurdle I sense for me of like, is it this full no self? Is it the, the one self? Or what I sense that I haven't fully grasped or integrated yet is it's somehow both, both and mm. as, as Richard Rohr likes to say, but yeah, experiencing it experiencing whether it is the no self or the one self, the oneness is a, a different ball game to actually be able to integrate it into our being that, that to mm -hmm. me feels like the journey of life is, is gradually further taking off the veil or removing the veil from that realization.
Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this kind of goes to that idea of the big eye and the little eye, right? So the big eye would be the one, the one consciousness, the universal source, the one, whatever mm-hmm. all of this has been generated from that, that would be the big eye that we all, that we're all part of, that we're all experiencing in some level. And then the little eye is our individual self that we usually refer to when we're like, I am going to the store. <laughs> You're talking about your physical mind body, right? And there's a, yeah. And kind of what you're saying is that in those, in the Anada tradition, it sounds like you're saying that you wouldn't even refer to it as, as, as a self, you would just see it as like the big overall, whatever this is, mm-hmm. we're all, we're all that. And yeah. And then the Advaita is recognizing that there is no separation between the little eye and the big eye, that it's, it's like a related concept, which is like a different mm-hmm. way of, of going at it. I was funny because in another conversation with my brother, I remember I had this thought of how we, you know, this, this physical manifestation is like the, is like a different version of our five senses. So, you know, we have taste and touch and, and hearing and smelling and that sort of thing in order for our minds to perceive and experience. That's how we, that's how we understand life is through our senses. And it's almost like we are the senses for the greater consciousness. That was a bit of a mind trip for me to sort of get into that place of like, wow, I am the way that consciousness perceives other, like perceives itself. And for a moment, thinking of myself as a sense for consciousness, just like, you know, my, my sense of touch is a perception for myself to experience the world. It it like, it sort of tweaked my mind a little bit to, to where I felt some of that experience of like, Oh, this is, this is the big eye. Like (laughs) I, I had a glimpse of like, Oh, okay. This is, this is it. Um, it also, what you said made me think of Spira, Rupert Spira refers to it as the, he called it like three recognitions or like three discoveries. And the Mm -hmm. first discovery is like, I am, you know, these are all the things that I am, that I am not. And then there's, and then like the next recognition would sort of be, this is what I am. And that that third step or that third recognition is I am all of this, that there is really truly no separation. Yeah. And, and going through those stages is, is helpful to, to unpack this, right? I mean, in a lot of respects, these happen through experience, mm-hmm. right? I think we talked about that either last week or the week before, or maybe we've talked touched on it every week. I mean, there's such an overlap of all these big concepts, but when we reach the end of ourselves, right? That's a lot mm-hmm. of times when you, you reach that first call it negation because you reach the end of yourself. You're like, this can't be it, right? There's gotta be mm-hmm. something more. And so some would call it waking up or awakening. Yeah. So I definitely resonate with, with what you're saying and what's referring from Spira is that that staged 
component or the stages of awakening. And one thing I wanted to add too, uh, as you're sharing about that perspective of that, we are the senses of consciousness. I'll be careful how I say it because, you know, there, there is that sensitivity between like this more scientific, like consciousness school and the religious school, but there is such an overlap. And I'm reminded of a a quote and I'm not going to be able to say it verbatim, but a quote from Meister Eckhart, uh, you know, the Christian mystic who basically said something along the lines of the purpose of humanity is in order for God to experience God's self. And it's kind Mm. of the same idea, right? This overlap Mm. between this heavy consciousness work, but also the work of mystics that that they've been talking about for, for centuries or more is this ultimate sense that we are the purpose of humanity is for God or consciousness or whatever that primordial essence of reality is to, to have this experience. When I was having this conversation with my brother yesterday, you know, and we were talking about it, I, I really, I had another, one of those glimpses of the experience, right. Where I thought, because, because I've struggled with this idea too, of like, if, you know, if I was standing in one of those satsangs in front of Muji or Spira or Toll or Maharaj. And, and they were like, well, who do you, you know, who do you say that you are? Also reminded of that exchange that Jesus had, right? It was mm-hmm. like, who do you say that I am? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I thought like, well, what would I say? Because there's this, there's that need to like, get it right. <laughs> right? Like, right. Yeah. Do I say I'm awareness? Do I say mm-hmm. I'm presence? And when I was talking to my brother, I had this thought of, I am like the big I as being what's left when everything else falls away. It's very much that, that negation mm-hmm. that you were, that you were mentioning. And one of the harder moments for me in letting things fall away, like, because even deconstruction, like that's, that's in essence what deconstruction is. Deconstruction is the falling away of the religious identity that you had, that you had built for yourself. You know, so many people see deconstruction as a lot of people just don't see deconstructioning as a step in of an awakening, right? Like they see deconstruction Mm, as all of these things falling away from them. And there can be a lot of anger and loss and grief and confusion and strife in all of it. But deconstruction now I understand it was my first step in awakening. It didn't feel like an awakening because you hear all these other people talk about kind of like what you had, right? Like you had this really blissful experience. And so I like, well, that's what I thought awakening was going to be like, <laughs> like this sudden, you know, like mm-hmm. shaft of like coming down from, you know, from the heavens and like, ah, and instead it was this very fraught, like, like devastating experience that now I can be like, oh, that was actually a falling away of my identity, which is a step in this process of awakening. Um, but what I was going to say is that in letting things fall away, like, so deconstruction and losing my faith was a huge falling away. And then after that, there were more pieces of myself that I started letting get, letting go of. And then there was a moment when I did have this really awful time when I thought I'm going to become nothing. 
Like if, if I let go of this, this striving to become a coach or a writer or this or that, if, if I no longer have my ambition to be something, if I let go of that, then I'm going to become nothing. And it was not a nice thought, but it's almost like you have to go there into that nothingness in order to get to this place where you can say like, I am that which remains when all else has fallen away. Yeah. And I think it plays into what we talked about last week in the sense of suffering, that fear of becoming nothing. Mm -hmm. The question is, where is that coming from? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Like the little eye. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I, I didn't <laughs> want to give the answer, but that, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and that's just it. I mean, I, I mentioned it last week, but I'll probably keep mentioning it is, is the, the teaching of Jesus that resonates the most with me and, and has ever since I had this, this breakthrough a few years ago is you must lose your life in order to gain life. And what he's saying there is you must lose the little eye in order to fully become the big eye, which is your true essence, which is, Mm -hmm. it is the fundamental essence of who you are, that continual shedding away of, of all the things that make you that little eye. And yeah, it's, it's a scary, that's why they call it a dark night of the soul in a way, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's scary for the little eye. And it's, it's interesting too, because I think one of the things that I have, you know, you can kind of see different people's opinion of it. And I am not of the opinion that you have to kill your ego. Like, I don't think that it's, I mean, it can feel at times like you're at war with yourself, but I think that that is even a false, not a false, like the, that's not necessarily the right way to look at it. But I, I like the term that other people have used about um, a it's like a changing of authority, how the little eye has been in control for so long and has been the thing that you've built all of your identities around and your understanding around. And that this process of going through these different discoveries, right. And then you, you realize like, well, I'm not the thought, I'm not the mind, I'm not the body, I'm not these roles that I've been playing it's not that you're killing your ego and saying, I no longer need the little I because you do. That's just like inherent in being human. It's a changing over of authority. It's a recognition. Like I'm no longer going to allow those like base needs and desires of the little I to control me. I am going to try to shift to this big I perspective and awareness And that is going to be the thing that is the primary driver of this vessel. It feels like, and I think we use the language that we're, you know, we're killing the ego or that the little eye is dying or something, but it's not, it's not ever going to go away. Like you're, if you're human, you're always going to have that little eye, that ego, those base human evolutionary things inside of you, but there's a difference that they no longer have to be the ones that are in control. They are, that are running the show. And so I think that, you know, where some people say like, oh no, you have to kill the ego. It's not killing the ego. It's just, at least I've experienced it more as 
a shift in in authority or like a changing over of the guard kind mm-hmm. of an experience do you do you see it similarly yes yeah but a little different it's funny is you think about killing the ego who kills the ego uh, right? yeah it's right. just another thing for the ego <laughs> to do like coming in the back door yeah <laughs> it really is the back door is like, i'm gonna kill myself yeah, it is <laughs> it, it is it is no absolutely yeah. it is. i mean we say that laughingly but like it totally is it, that can be a that can be a huge ego gratification to say oh i'm i'm gonna <laughs> i am going to the the ego Good is going point. to be destroyed like like you're 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 you feel like you're independent of it, but really it's, it's covertly working all along. Um, so yeah, I think that, that like activeness of it is, is ego. And actually the, the definition of a definition of ego I liked was from Adi Ashanti in his book, but straight talks to enlightenment was the subtitle. Yeah. I'll think of it for later, but he talked about how ego is more of a verb than anything. And it's, it's that, doing from the separate self essentially um and so that killing versus allowing to be killed i think is an important distinction because i do think that the death symbolism is is valuable Mm -hmm. i don't think that it's a death in the sense that it it dies and it ceases to be so so it it does lose it because what you're saying is is 100 true like it's it's not like our ego is going to disappear right? Mm -hmm. Because if our ego ceases to be, then, then this experience ceases to be. And it's just like, what's the point? The only difference I see is, is this idea of letting go is that I think that there is this surrendering of a control and like shifting the locus of control out of our finite separateness and into the infinite, Mm -hmm. which is kind of neat, right? Like going to this place of law of attraction like we can manifest and create anything like you know there is there is a there is a a basis to think that way i think um but i think the the being willing to let go is so important and holding it loosely and the another bible story is coming to mind i don't even know why i don't even like i don't really (laughs) think about bible stories all that often but for some reason i know And I'm, I, I like to honor what, what floats into my consciousness in the moment, the, the story of Abraham and the very famous story about how he was going to s- sacrifice his son, Isaac, I think it was. And, and that's kind of how I see it in a way that we have to be willing to bring forth our egoic identity and put it on the altar and be willing to let it go and see what happens. Right. I, I, I mean, we don't know that we have to right. kind of trust that, that our higher self in this case, consciousness, whatever we want to call it is, is going to make things work and however it's going to make things work. But the, the, the willingness to fully let go of, of our egoic identities is to me and, and what my experience has been, has been really helpful. That is a fascinating take on the Isaac Abraham story. It's interesting too, right? Because we do that with these different roles that we play. Like we believe that we birth a life for ourselves, that we create a life for ourselves as a particular type of person, you know, whether it's in a career or whether it's an identity that we've built around having a family, 
or, you know, hopes and dreams that we have. Yeah. To say, okay, I'm going to bundle this thing up and I'm going to walk it up to an altar and I'm going to stand there and like, you know, burn it up. If that's what you, (laughs) that's what Mm -hmm. you, you know, what, what I need to do in order to go deeper into this consciousness. And it's interesting. It's a really good, gosh, it's such a good story to bring up because it also shows the separation that I am not that, that Abraham was not his son, just in the same way that I, the big, I am not this identity that I have attached and like have been believing that I am the little I, right. It's like, Abraham would be the big eye. Isaac would be mm-hmm. the little eye. And, and even, you know, going to the, right, how the story continues and God provides, provides something else for the yeah, sacrifice. A lamb, like a white yeah, lamb. Yeah. That it wasn't, it kind of shows too that this identity doesn't actually, it, this identity is not the thing that is important. That you can still continue to be whatever it is, whatever the role is that you're playing, but it's that you have severed your attachment to it, mm-hmm. that you have said, I'm willing to let this go. And, but you don't necessarily actually have to, to give it up. You can still maintain it. It just is that you have, you're no longer attached to it as your, as yourself, like your emotional attachment to it is, has been released through that willingness to surrender it. Yeah. Another, another analogy is coming to mind and it actually plays off of the Spyro video that you were talking about, where he lists out this, the stages of enlightenment and he gives the analogy actually pretty similar to the analogy you gave, uh, at episode two about the, the sun, the glasses. And you, we wear all these pairs oh. of glasses and we take them off. Mm-hmm. But his analogy here was the, your clothing, right? You, you, mm-hmm. you're taking off these clothing. So I was thinking about this in regards to what we're talking about. So for case of this analogy, we are our body, right? And we wear all these clothings, these pieces of clothing, these articles of clothing that are things that we identify with. So you know, thinking about, um, we've got this nice, cozy, warm jacket take that off. That's, that's our deconstruction, right? We, we right. lose, we lose our, our really, really important beliefs. And now we're we lost that we lost that comfort. And then we start to find other things. It's like, wait, I'm not this. You, you take off that, that article of clothing, the shirt or whatever, the pants, and you get to a point where you're fully naked. And that is, that is what remains. Right. And, and so for mm-hmm. the sake of, of analogy here, that is it. That is the, the, uh, the big I it, it essentially is what's there where I think this comes into play is what we're talking about is it's not like you have to stay naked, right? You get to that right. point of, of realizing you are nothing in the absolute sense. And here's what you could do from a different place. Kind of that's that shift of who's in charge. Like you were saying from a different place, you decide what you wear, and you could put mm-hmm. on all the same clothes again. They're all still there. You mm-hmm. could put them on or you could put on a totally different set of clothes. But I think that's, that's kind of where it is. Is like you, you let all of it go. You take all of it off. And then from that place of emptiness, the Buddhist term would be emptiness. Then you 
fill it up with whatever you should choose always from the vantage point that you are not that right. You are the mm-hmm. one that is choosing what to fill it with. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of a, it's a, a slightly, <laughs> slightly different take, but I'm thinking of that story. Um, the emperor who has no clothes and, and it's a very, mm-hmm. it, so it's a fairy tale of sorts. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, the idea is that the emperor wants to have like the most beautiful, spectacular clothing to show how wealthy and rich he is. And these people come up, come along and fool him. And they're, you know, the seamstresses are there and they're like sewing and, but they're really doing nothing. They're talking about how they're sewing with the most beautiful gold, but the emperor can't see it. And, but he doesn't want anybody else to know that he can't see it. And so his pride keeps him from being like, you're not actually sewing anything. And so they sew him these beautiful garments and they take and they pretend to like robe him with these garments. And he is walking around fooling himself into believing that he has clothes on. And everyone else is like, the emperor is naked. Like, doesn't he know that he's not wearing anything? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of that same, I mean, it sort of feels like that cosmic joke and that we're walking around believing that we are all these identities whenever you know, consciousness is like, but you're just naked, like, like really at the heart of who, like at the heart of who you are, like you're, like you're, you're the nakedness underneath, like you're not actually any of these things that you're trying to, that you're trying to put on. And Mm -hmm. the way that you stated it reminds me of how, when I was first getting into the consciousness stuff, I would read these people, you know, I'd read these different books and, and watch these videos and people would say, you're not a mother writer, you're not the, the job title. It can be confusing because on one hand, on the very like little eye human perspective, it's like, I am a mother. I have three little boys running around that I am responsible for. And if I just up and decide one day that I'm not a mother, like there's real world consequences <laughs> for, you know, for walking away from that role. And it took me a little while to shift my mind to say, okay, whenever I say I am not a mother, I am, I am not a wife. I am, I am not a daughter. I am not a warrior. It, what I was doing was saying that from the big eye perspective, I don't have to be so attached to those identities to let them say something about me personally, especially when it comes to something like like parenthood, right? It's really easy to take on the identity and really have it be embedded deeply. And you, you know, that it's like the mama bear and, you know, that being a parent is this core part of who you are and to allow the role to define you or even to do the same thing with a career, you know, as like, oh, I'm a lawyer. And so I have to be a certain way and present a certain way. And this says something about how smart I am or how successful I am. It's turning it so that the role is defining you and saying something about you, as opposed to you are imbuing the role with, you know, your own like conscious essence. For me, the taking off of that identities has really been not so much like a literal you know, I am not a mother kind of a thing, but just loosening my attachment to, to that role and to what I've allowed it to mean for me. 
and to, to hold it more loosely and to have there be a more play in it, right? Of like, I, the big I can express itself, can be expressed through the role of parenthood or being an attorney or whatever. But that's different than allowing that role to define the little I. Yeah. It reminds me to go back to the Abraham story where, you know, Abraham birthed into existence, Isaac. And one could say in the same respect that the big I births into existence, the little I. And so mm-hmm. in your case, Karen, who's a mother and wife and attorney and all these other things, the big I has birthed into and facilitated exactly this very moment who you are. In my case, same thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. The big eye has birthed into this little eye that is Dave, that is a dad, that is an accountant that is sitting here in this room right now talking to you. And then to go back to the Abraham story, I think it's where that, that willingness to always remember that what we've birthed into the world is not us is so Mm -hmm. important that, you know, we, we are able to play in it and get lost in it, so to speak, while seeking to continually remember our true essence behind all of it. And that, that remembering is an interesting term. So for the longest time in this consciousness, esoteric, mystical, spiritual journey of mine, I've used the word realization, like Ah, you wake up and you realize, mm. but, but Spira talks about remembrance and, and other teachers too. And that, that was powerful because it is, it is not like you suddenly realize, oh, this is who I actually am. No, no, no. There is no, there's no realization you've known all along. Uh, you've just forgotten. And mm-hmm. so remembering is such a powerful, a, a powerful way to look at it. I think. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, yeah, that I've been uh, struck with a little bit and that I was actually experiencing right now as I was watching you on Zoom, it was so weird. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how we, so sometimes uh, Spira and I don't know if I've heard Tolle say it so much, but Maharaj and his, or Nisargadatta Maharaj and his I in that book references it multiple times, how when he looks at the other person talking, right? So like someone will ask Rupert Spira a question and Rupert Spira has said like, you know, when I look at you, I see myself. And what they're saying is they're embodying consciousness in that moment and saying that they're not looking at you from the little, the eyes of the little eye and seeing another separate little eye. They're looking from the eyes of the big eye and seeing the big eye reflected back just like through a different body. I was thinking about how in this human body form, we're all the same. If you cut open one human and you cut open another, it's going to look exactly the same. (laughs) And it just happens. Like the difference is how, you know, the big eye consciousness is expressed, is expressed through that person. And like we use the same form 
to go about and do all of these different things. And yet, if you really look deeply into the eyes of another person, like you really do see in essence, the very same thing that you are. Right. And I just had this weird, this weird moment. I wasn't like looking deeply into your eyes, of course, but I, I really had this weird moment where I was just like, yeah, I felt like I was having a conversation with myself. Mm. Right. And you and I have talked about that before, mm-hmm. but it, it's interesting how, like what you were saying that of consciousness giving birth, I mean, I, and, and Spira and, you know, these other guys have used a similar, in, a similar image where they say that that what we are is sort of like, if you took, you know, whenever you take sunlight and you filter it through a prism, all of a sudden in your room, you know, you can look around and there could be like hundreds or thousands of little sparkles of light, right. As this, as the sun comes shining through this prism and that essentially that's what this experience is the greater something out there is filtering itself through a form through this physical form. And then you get all of the millions of fragments of light that are, and those are the human. That's like the, the, the little eye in that sense, we all have the, the same consciousness, like the same light coming into, into our physical form, but it's just in this, really condensed finite version and that part of our experience here is being able to tap into the fact that we're not just that little sparkle of light. We're actually the entire sun. It just is that we're having to experience it in a condensed form because in order to become a form, consciousness had to filter itself. You know what I mean? Like, have you heard, I don't know, do you have a better metaphor for that? Have you heard these? Oh, I, I don't want to say a better metaphor, but I do have one that's coming to mind. And I, okay. I think it's great. I think these metaphors are great because metaphors can definitely help to understand it. And the, the metaphor I've loved the most, I, I do like that prism. I've never heard that before, but it, I like it. I like the source of light and the reflection kind of reminds me of the the sun and the moon analogy where like mm-hmm. the the moon like the moon looks so bright but it's it's really just a reflection of the sun's brightness mm-hmm. um but the metaphor that i think ramana maharshi used often or at least he's credited to have been used is the screen and i think screens are a good one because we use them so much right i mean mm-hmm. i'm literally using a screen right now you're using a screen people everywhere probably watch TV a, a fair amount. And so we're, we're on screens all the time. And there's such a vast array of experiences that happen on screens. But the reality is we're just looking at a screen, right? The right. screen is yeah. just the screen. And so the screen takes on these, the infinite array of lives of experiences, I should say, but the true essence of the, the experience is the screen. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's been helpful to me to remember that at the very core of, of all of this is this base essence that is the screen that is just illuminating all of these various experiences. So to, to connect it to the, the sunlight into the prism, 
the sunlight is the, the base essence or in the screen analogy, the screen is the base essence. And we are not the fragmented light on the other end of the spectrum. That is what we appear to be in this moment. And we are not whatever the Netflix show on the screen is. We're the screen. And that continual remembering of that, uh, I think is what it's all about. Yeah, I, I think it's too. Like I had, I don't know, there was one day when I had this thought too of like consciousness blowing up balloons like if you if you imagine consciousness as like the guy who is blowing up these balloons and it's like it's you know he's just picking up a form right like a balloon and blowing air into it and the form is you know going off and he picks up another balloon and blows air into it and it's like we're all made of the same air it just is that the form that we're in happens to be like happens to be different but we take ourselves to be the form and not to be the air inside and then death is basically just like you know when the air like comes out of the balloon <laughs> like, and so you're left with that form you know the dead body or whatever like what happened yeah so then that's another way of theme and I think too it's kind of the like a lot of people say that we're like waves in an ocean mm-hmm. too right that mm-hmm. you know we believe that we're the wave that we have some form of our own like you know that that's what we are when in reality we're just the ocean that has taken on a particular a particular form we're all ocean mm-hmm. so that that reminds me of i think it was michael gunger's book called this really really good book it resonates with a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here he talked about the ocean same same idea that you know mm-hmm. there's these waves it's like hey look at me i'm a wave i'm a wave and then you crash on the ocean and you die mm-hmm. and you return to the ocean what he touched on that I had never heard before is this potential resistance to say, well, that's stupid because we're human beings. And when a human being dies, it's much more significant than a wave crashing on the Mm, the shore. uh And his point was, how do we know? How do we know that we're any more significant than that wave crashing in the ocean or crashing on the, uh, on the shore. Uh And that is, that is what makes humans different is we're, we are programmed to think that we are the center of the universe, that we are the most significant thing and everything is filtered through what we know in our experience. But really there's so much that we don't know that we, we probably never will know. I mean, science has gone so far in amazing, amazing ways, but there's so much that we don't know that we can't grasp the experience. We can't grasp the experience that consciousness has through mm-hmm. being a wave much less anything else in the natural world. So it's kind of an equally like cool analogy, but also like very humbling to actually think about how the ocean operates and how waves work. I just had a similar uh, conversation. So I recently watched um, the movie Don't Look Up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I watched that too. Right, on, on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is that there's this asteroid coming to earth and everyone is freaking out and it's like, how are we going to save our planet? How are we going to save humanity and civilization and all this kind of stuff? And underlying all of it is that it's necessary or like worthy to be saved, right? Or or necessary that we're Mm. saved. And, you know, we do have this evolutionary drive to, to reproduce, right? Like to, to continue, to continue our species existence in, in some way. But yeah, there's this idea that 
that were so important and like, what would, you know, what would happen if humans no longer existed? Like, well, there does seem to be a point where humans didn't exist. (laughs) The earth earth was like perfectly fine. And look at, like it manifested human life without humans actually doing anything. Like we weren't there at the beginning. Why do we think that we're so, why do we think that we're so important and so necessary? And, and I thought too about, you know, Elon Musk has this whole thing about going to Mars and a potential Mars colony and, and every, and it's, it's so exciting and interesting and right. But I always look at my husband and I'm just like, has anybody actually looked at Mars? Like there's nothing there. Like who in their right minds would want that? Like, why would you even want an existence like that just in order to perpetuate human life? And I think, you know, one of the things in the Don't Look Up movie that's really, that's really beautiful, right? Is they inter, inter, intercut these, you know, these very uh, human scenes of like people running around and scrambling and trying to figure out how to stop this asteroid with these really beautiful images of like a bee getting nectar from a flower and dew on grass and a sunrise and these really beautiful things. It's like, this is what is amazing about this experience. Like just the fact that we get to experience it. And I don't know, but yeah, I'm totally with you that there's our, our little eyes are like, we have to survive at all costs. (laughs) And the big eye perspective is sort of like, you're not actually all that as important as you think you are. And the experience is the beautiful thing, not the perpetuation of it, like not the perpetuation of your existence. Your, your existence is only significant and that you get to continue the experience. But yeah, I, I, I agree. Like there's this, we definitely have this pride that our little eyes, like we have to continue which yeah. how, do, like, how do we know? Right. And, and I think it's, it, it goes back to what we were talking about a little earlier about where your locus of perception is coming from, your locus of control, your locus of awareness, whatever. I think this is important because on this spiritual path towards nothingness, as we're talking about, you can fall into that trap of meaninglessness. So the ego, that little I, wants to exist, wants to continue its existence, both as individual and as a species. And then it can be scary to go into nothingness because we're like, well, we lose that motivation. We lose that like right. ego, egoness motivation because we realize that it's all part of the illusory nature of our experience. But then I believe that we, sh- when you shift into the big eye, that's where the God language can be mm-hmm. so helpful and life breathing. That's where the God language comes in is because, you know, God or consciousness or whatever it is created this in order to have a beautiful experience. So in that respect, one could, could say that consciousness wants this to continue, wants the experience to continue, but from that place of perception, not from the finite separate human being, you know what I mean? So it's, it's almost Mm -hmm. like you can, you can have the same desire 
uh, for continuation of the human race, but coming from a completely different perspective. And again, more, more non-attached, right? You're not attached to that being who you are. You're attached to like, this is the experience that I'm having. This is an awesome experience of humanity, of the universe, of all this. This is, I love what I've created here, speaking as mm-hmm. the, the, the big eye. Um, and I want it to continue. But if it doesn't, I'm okay because I'll just go and create another experience, you know? Mm-hmm. And that might sound yeah. a little aloof, but yeah. No, I mean, and I think like that's one of the harder things for me to be open and honest about in a way that doing this, like doing this work and coming to this place has brought for me is just this much more beautiful idea of death. I mean, obviously as a person, I still like, you still experience sadness and grief and a sense of loss if someone dies. But there's also a place within me that is more detached and at least right now, feels kind of like an open door, like a release, like a place of release that that's the end of the form, but not the end of the essence. Mm. And that it's, it's a loss from a human perspective, but that there is no loss from the big eyes perspective. Like I, um, Muji actually did a video where he gave a really beautiful uh, description of it being of like, consciousness being like a candle that can light a thousand other candles without dimming its own flame. Mm. And that was like such a beautiful picture for me. And, you know, you cause sometimes people even say like a life has been extinguished, has been blown out. And it's like, actually it wasn't, it was just returned to its like return to its original source, like the form, like we perceive it, you know, from a human perspective as, as a life being lost, a life extinguished, but really it's almost just more like, like the essence withdraws back into itself. Like you say, like the wave crashes onto the ocean and, but the, the form of the wave ends, but there's no loss of water. The wave just recedes back into the, into the ocean. And, and, you know, sometimes I wonder if that is kind of what we experience whenever, you know, maybe you see it in your kids, like you, you look at your kids and you're like, oh my God, that's the exact same thing that my dad used to do or like, or someone who has died. You look at the person and an essence about them that seems familiar. That's kind of like a little teaser of the wave receded back into the ocean, but it's all the same water that gets mixed in and just takes on another form. It's an un comfortable position from an ego perspective to say that this is your new understanding of death because it can seem so uncompassionate to people who aren't in the same place, right? To be like, death isn't necessarily a bad thing. And so, and and I think even one of the teachers said like, the question isn't, why do you want to die? It's why do you want to live? You know, because when you, when you get to this place of seeing that being in the form actually necessarily involves suffering in some sense, whereas if your consciousness and consciousness is like peaceful, just creative, blissful essence, why would you not want to go back into it? And, you know, you do hear about stories about people who are at the end of their life. And for most 
people, most experiences that I've heard about at least, it's always a welcoming presence. And a lot of people will get, will get to that point in their death and they'll realize that's where they want to be, that they don't actually want to even be in this form anymore, but that they want to step out of the form because it's a, it's like an invitation to go back (laughs) to this like really beautiful place. And so, I don't know, I just, I appreciate that this way of being has invited me to see death in a different light, which also means if you see death in a different light, you get to see your own experience. It's like a, it's a strange thing of like no longer seeing death as being an end, but also more fully able to enjoy your experience now because you're less attached to it. And you, you can say if this is enough at the same time, as you can say, I really want to know it all. I really want to experience it all. Mm -hmm. And you, by doing that, you it's it's like a spiritual practice where you you make that shift into your your big i the higher self mm-hmm. it's reminding me of so something that Eckhart Tolle mentioned in his book the new earth the the sequel to power of now that we've talked about quite a bit but in the book he he brings in the ancient sage wisdom that this too will pass or this too shall pass and how that can be such a helpful piece of wisdom in many regards in on the surface, it can be helpful to cope. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and be like, you're in a really crappy situation. Oh, you know what? This too, this too will pass. It's okay. Right. And, and I, I use that a lot, but the deeper wisdom underneath that, when you really allow yourself to sink into the, this too will pass basically that it points to the temporary element of so much of our experience. And where he goes with that is when you consider all of the things in life, all of the things in experience that are temporary, our true essence is that which is not temporary that which yes. is experiencing it all. So, so in doing that, in, in embracing that wisdom, it is another spiritual practice where we are kind of inquiring into the big I. Mm-hmm. And I think when, what you're saying here with death, it's such a good way, you know, and, and forgive the, the criticism here, but a lot of religions are seem to be centered around having an answer for death that that cushions it right that death is you know there's an afterlife and you the the small i will continue in some respect you might reincarnate into a new form but it's still the little i or Mm -hmm. you might go to heaven you might go to hell all of these things that that are answers to the question of what happens when you die but not really as deep as coming to terms with death just being a natural part of the story of that is unfolding in this eternal present moment. Right. Or the opposite that like actually what you're, I mean, so, so two things, Dizzy, you said that, that death is a, like a continuation. I mean, you know, you think of the story of Jesus, right? It's like he lived a human life. I mean, I mean if you want to go all the way, it's like he was in heaven. He came down to earth for an experience. He lived a human life. 
he died and then he continued. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, Christians would say Jesus is still alive. Like he continued, like death was just sort of like a blip on the radar. I mean, and at this point, Jesus would have been alive significantly longer than he was considered dead. Right. So this is like really in the grand scheme of things, death was a very minimal experience of Jesus's life. And could we not think of it the same way that it's just like death is going to be a blip on the radar before we go into a new experience. It's just what we have, like, just like universal consciousness has to filter itself through a prism, you know, of a physical body in order to break into light. We're just sort of doing the reverse. We're going back through the, you know, death is like being sucked back Mm -hmm. into the prism to just go back into the big eye of what we originally were. So yeah, that was what came to mind. like either a continuation of life or that death is actually, you know, the return from the dream, right? Like, you know, other teachers talk about this life being an illusion and being a dream. And so we, from a human perspective, we see death as a loss, but from the big eye perspective, you could see it as a return back to reality as just the waking up from the dream. Like there's no negative connotation to it at all. I would say it as a little differently because I think it's really easy to slip into little eye thinking with this stuff mm-hmm. that, you know, we, we continually identify as that green spectrum of light from the prism and that we as the green spectrum of light are going to return back into um, the initial source of light. Right. But That's really we are, we are the light, right? We are, we are light, nothing, yes. nothing. So, so actually I think how I would frame this up is that <laughs> I do be very careful how I say this, but that death is an illusion that, yeah. you know, yeah. we, we see it from the, from the small eye we, yeah, there, there is, there is birth and death, but from absolute reality, this, whether it is the pure conscious, pure one source consciousness, unit of consciousness, whatever it is, it just always is always will be. And there's, it's ineffable. There's never anything that can be added to it or removed from it. Again, that God language, right? I mean, people would mm-hmm. say those things about God and that then death I wouldn't say it's as much as a return to it. It is just a part of the journey of it, it mm. you know, and to what you said that there's no negative, but I would say there's, there is no change. Maybe that's another way to look at it. There's no change to the source of light because the source of the light is always the same. Right. I had this, this thought. So, you know, the third discovery or stage or recognition that Spira mentions is the sense of I am everything. Like I am this and kind of like what you're saying, you know, it's the little, the little sparkle of light recognizing I am all of it. Like I am the sun, you know, I'm, I'm no longer just a sparkle of light. Like I am the sun. I am I am all of this. One of the things that came to mind when, when I was kind of thinking about all of this is how we perceive matter, like physical objects and things as, as things as solid. Right. But if you really like get down to the atoms that they're made of, the atoms are mostly space, like just nothingness. And then there's these 
protons and neutrons and exons in it. And so even, you know, it just happens to be that they're all packed together tightly enough to create some sort of a solid substance. And they're all, you know, all the electrons and orbits are all full enough to like give them strength and all that, all that physics stuff. But at the heart of it all, they're all space. That to me is sort of a, a helpful place to go when I'm wanting to try to think about this, like, how could I, how could I have this experience or this sense, like a practical level, right. Of, of being that. And one of the things that I have talked about in the past as a way of being in the present moment is to tune into your senses, right. To think like, okay, what am I hearing right now? What am I seeing right now? But in that practice, there is a an experience of separation of all of those things as being separate from yourself that I, you know, well, right now I'm sitting on a bed that helps bring me to the present moment, but I'm perceiving the bed as being something separate from myself. It's the thing that I am sitting on. And lately I've been trying this experience where I tune into my five senses of like what's going on around. And then I try to imagine myself and all of this, all of this space in all of those atoms that is holding all of this stuff together. Like this space, just the space that is in the sound waves, the, the space, you know, that is in the atoms that have created this like solid matter of bed that I've felt and, and envisioning myself, the big eye as being that space and thinking I am all of this. Like, I mean, even, even that is not the essence of it, but thinking of it like that and then trying to actually sense into that. It's been interesting. And in a way, it, like, it naturally makes you smile and makes you feel sort of lighter about it because there's something funny. And you have that sense of like, I have created all of this. I have I have been part of the creating of the noise around me and the life around me and the things around me because I am the space that infiltrates all of it. And it kind of helps to collapse that sense of separateness. It's been a very new thing, like only the last couple of days, but it's, it's kind of a cool, a cool place to go into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the quote that's coming to mind that I, I love is from, Nizargadatta Maharaj, <clears throat> and he says, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Mm. And between the two, my life flows. We can oscillate in what you're saying. For risk of stating the obvious, you are experiencing Karen. I'm experiencing Dave, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> right? They, they, we, there's, there's nothing we can do about that. There's nothing we should do about that. So in that sense, like for whatever reason, there's a finite element of our experience, but at the same time, understanding as the more we boil down, the more we can, we can see these things that Maharaj speaks of that, that emptiness in all of that space in our own bodies so we are, are we that, are we the emptiness of our body? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what is the lifeblood of who we are? And so it gets to this point where, yeah, I mean, we can oscillate in between that. Uh, and I, I think of it as the, the prism too, with that, that everything and nothing where we could be in, in one end of the prism with all of the lights and have this sense of 
well, we we're really nothing um, in comparison to the whole, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then coming back to being the, the light that, that shines and that's, that's the everything. It's just, yeah, it's interesting. It just is so tricky to, to, to think about this stuff. And so the other thing that's coming to mind is how it really transcends what we can grasp, what we can like absolutely. think our way to. And that's where it's <laughs> yes, like all this absolutely. stuff is, it's so helpful to, to have these sages who've been saying these same things for <clears throat> thousands of years and be able to grasp them. But, but yet to be able to fully integrate them into our being, it just seems as though it's like, we just have to experience it. And that's why I love what you're sharing because to, to do those practices, right. I mean, that's a, that's a very outside the box spiritual practice, but it is, it's, it is, it is stepping into that experience of being the one that manifests as the everything. I'm thinking of, uh, I don't know if it was Muji. I mean, I'm sure he's not the first one to say it, but you know, he makes a comment of, if you don't know who you are, how can you know anything? If you aren't sure of who you are, or what you are, how can you even know anything? And it's funny because even when you said, you know, you're having the experience of being Karen and I'm, I'm having the experience of being Karen, you're having the experience of being Dave. It's like, actually, that's not even totally true, right? It's like, I'm having the experience of the, this mind and this body that mm-hmm. has been given the name Karen Mm -hmm. and and like if we and this is you know part of what I love about self or like this self-inquiry this investigation process of the non-dual the non-dual path is that it really takes you back to the beginning of like when you were born you didn't have any experience of what it was to be a boy or a girl like you just had this experience of being and you didn't come out with the name Dave. Your parents were like, oh, Dave is a good name. Like we're going to call this little human thing, human being Dave. And then, you know, your like your personality, your inherent race, like the nurture nature thing, like whatever your form took, plus like the nurturing and the cultural conditioning you received formulated this idea that you have around what it means to be Dave. And it's, it's such a trip to like sit there and do that, do that for ourselves to be like, okay, when I came out of, you know, when I came out of my mom's belly, like all I knew was just like the inherent like reflexes, you know, that a baby has, like that was my experience. And then everything else gets piled on top of you the name, the gender identification, you know, the, what you wear and how you behave, it all just like starts getting piled onto you naturally. And at some point, you know, awakening, you throw it off and then you're that naked person. Like, like, right. Like you're back to being that little naked baby Mm -hmm. to just being pure sensation and pure awareness and almost like pure, pure response, but from a place of very deep knowing mm-hmm. i love that me as a baby versus me today as a fully grown man married kids job all that stuff the only thing that was shared between that baby and me now is that i am right yes that's it yeah 
And so the other thing coming to mind is I'm pretty drawn to the different developmental models, transpersonal psychology, stuff like that, about not only human psychological development, but, but spiritual development, spiritual evolution, consciousness evolution. And we start as this baby full of just reflexes and intuition, um, not really any sense of individuality. And then we go through the development where our ego develops and develops and develops and society tells us who we are and we put on all these clothes to tell us Mm -hmm. who we are our attachment to our body yeah mm -hmm. and then like you said the awakening is is losing that and then you you kind of go back to where you started but but what you added is that sense of knowingness that you obviously wouldn't have had as a baby and and i think that that by and large feels like the developmental models that, that we as a society and we as individuals, we go through these like heavily ego centered stages of evolution to ultimately go back to where we started in this very basic primal way of being, but full mm. of infinite knowledge. Gosh, I love talking about this stuff so much. I feel like we're going to have to like, I mean, obviously it's a theme. It's a continuing, you know, it's a Mm -hmm. continual thing, but it's, I mean, my ego, my ego like totally gets, gets off on this stuff. Is it so, and, and this is, this is one of the things too. And I know we've, we're about out of time, but like, this is one of the things when, whenever people deconstruct or whenever they're like, you know, oh gosh, I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my feelings. I'm not my body. Like, I don't know if I can handle that. Like, I don't, I don't know if I want to go there. I don't know if I want to accept that or like even entertain that idea. Cause it's so scary to think about losing myself. I feel like this is the beauty that is on the other side that like you can't know until you go through it. And, and this is why I feel like at this point I can, I can say so confidently there is hope and beauty and joy in this nothingness because these are like this is the more that is out there once you once you let go of your attachments this kind of goes back to the cosmic joke you know when we're fully into our ego we can think that that's as good as it gets or there's there's like a pride there right of like what more can be known you know and when you let go of that pride and you really do like the jesus thing like you must be like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Like whenever you're willing to let go of this sense that you know everything, that you've got everything all figured out and that that your little finite mind can figure out like everything there is to be known. When you let go of all of that, like, wow, my God, there's like, this is so cool. <laughs> there's so much out there. It's a death to be, it's like a feeling of death, but I just, I love talking about this stuff so much it's so fun and it just it really does feel like a taste of the a taste of the infinite that the human language just doesn't have and can't ever have like the ability to to describe it really is that like you have to experience you have to experience it but it's here 
yeah the the internet i think is it like we are programmed to become healthy egos that are healthy in in how rooted and grounded we are in our limitations <laughs> right but mm-hmm. really the actual essence that drives us is is infinite and that is that is our true nature why do we obsess about being attached to our our limitedness rather mm-hmm. than step into the the limitlessness the infinite and i'll just say that you know coming from my vantage point i don't know <laughs> right so i mean I know. We don't, who knows i mean that's the thing like we we don't we don't know any i mean you know i always go back to I love the matrix, right? I love the matrix because it's, it causes you to think about this stuff differently. And that's true. I mean, we could be computer simulated existence. Right. Now. <laughs> right. We yes. could be robots. We could be sentient robots. And our, the origin of our sentience is uh, aliens. Who knows? Right? All these possibilities. But the, what resonates so much with me about this I amness, this consciousness, this awareness is, it is obvious that we are all aware. That's what we share. Mm-hmm. We, we are aware mm-hmm. of this experience and there is no separation between my awareness and your awareness. And therefore the fundamental essence of who we are, there is no separation. It is that one, the one awareness. And what I love about it is like, it doesn't really matter the the actual source of that. You know what I mean? Because I struggle, I struggle with that sometimes. I was actually, I was, I was out for a walk yesterday with my dog, just, you know, doing this philosophical existential questioning of, of life. And I was like, what is the source? You know, what, where does all this come from? And I was, it was fun. I love doing that. But at some point you reach, or I, I reach a point where I'm like, I don't know right? I have no idea. It's fun to like ponder about and see what arises when I bring my awareness to those kind of thoughts. But the mm-hmm. re- reality is we don't know, but this, this, I amness, this consciousness is obvious. And so that's, it's kind of a neat essence to kind of attach to, right? If we're going to attach to one thing, it's attaching to that sense of consciousness, awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had this thought the other day about how we can really easily get caught up and being like, how can something come from nothing? Mm-hmm. Right. Like how can the universe come from nothing? And like, well, right. if it came from something, where did that come from? Like, you know, you right. can just like keep going back and back, but then That's at exactly the same time, what I was, I was thinking like, about. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. But it's interesting, right? Because we bring forth some things all the time from a place of seemingly nowhere, right? It's like we ourselves, can have this, like an idea, right? You can have no experience in something. And then all of a sudden an idea can come into your head and there's no basis for that knowingness. It just mm-hmm. comes mm-hmm. and you, and then you then go out and do something about it. And all of a sudden it's like, you made something from nothing. I mean, it, it, it is such a trip, but it's, I, I, I just had this thought of like, it, it helps us sort of experience that creator awareness space 
that we're always wondering about. I mean, in that sense, we are the source, but it is fascinating. And it, it is one of those things where like, you don't want to get, you don't want to get too cut up in it because mm-hmm. you can just like lose your freaking mind. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just like thinking how we're many, like how we are those like sparks of light that are like being birthed from consciousness, but we are consciousness. And I don't know. It all is such like a mind fuck, but it's God, it's a fun one. <laughs> mm-hmm. and the the encouragement is and and we'll wrap up with this the teachers and the sages and the mystics all of them have really touched on the same thing so you know not that we're here like you know anything special we're, we're just regurgitating what we've heard and and experienced but what I think is important is this sense of peace that comes from this process is yes. so it, it pervades all of it. Yes. In every tradition that people are talking about this, peace is there. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like it's healthier to stop there. <laughs> you know, stop at the fruit of the pursuit rather than figuring out where does the fruit come from? (laughs) Because then it it just becomes almost beyond our our ability. So anyway, um, yeah, why don't we, why don't we stop there? So again, thanks. Thanks everybody for listening. And as always, uh, we'd love to talk to you. Um, if you have questions or, or want to further dialogue with us about this this weirdness we like to talk about, as you can tell, we, we love to talk about it. So, so email at us at, at from believing to being at gmail.com. And yeah, just the takeaway here is this is um, really fun stuff, but it can also be as Karen and I would both attest to, it can be difficult. Um, you can go through existential crises or whatever. So, so just be a little caution there, but ultimately um, finding that peace is, is why I do it is to, to find mm-hmm. the peace surpass this understanding however that expression goes surpass understanding yeah i love it bringing it back around as always <laughs> thanks <Of course>. dave <laughs>